Well, we have been uh, going through the Old Testament in uh, this summer, and we've been on a journey through the second book in the Old Testament, which is called Exodus. And the basic plot line of Exodus is that God has a project that he's been working on, and he has been uh, initiating a rescue plan to get a group of people that he has chosen as his own, the Israelites, out of slavery in the land of ancient Egypt. So to review our storyline to date, I'm going to need some willing uh, t-shirt models as we have done through the summer. So I need eight uh, willing t-shirt models to come up here and you'll just slip on one of our t-shirts here over top of, all right, guys, good, good, all right, excellent. Yes, yes, I see that hand. You're coming now, they're coming to the front. If you have friends, they'll wait. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It feels like an old-style revival meeting, doesn't it? Okay. All right. So here we go. Let's do our review. And we're gonna, we might need some other, uh, we might need a few others of you. Okay. So we'll start. This is a medium. All right. This is an adult medium. Okay. All right. We'll go. He'll see us. He'll take it. Okay. All right. The sizes go up from there. You're aware of that, right? So we need a few other people. Okay. So week one, we have the birth of Moses. We have the story of Moses' mother and his sister, who take incredible risks of faith. They hide Moses in a papyrus basket in the Nile River in amongst the reeds, and they take incredible risks. And so week one, we learn that God's radical provision flows to those who take big risks for his mission, because God was going to have an incredible part for Moses to play as the rescue story continues to unfold. Okay, now we're going to a small from here. Who's up next? All right. I don't think we go to extra small. I think it just goes to small, so we'll see. Okay, Aaliyah, you want to slip that on? Okay, so week two, Ruth Ellen led us through the story of Moses. Moses has now grown up. He grew up as the prince uh, in Egypt, and he encountered God at the burning bush in the wilderness. And so we talked uh, about our objections sometimes. When God asks us to do things, we posted them up on the objections wall. And we learned that God often takes things that are incredibly ordinary and he uses them in extraordinary ways. Okay, so week three, extra large. We're going to need another volunteer. Jared, you're going to do extra large? Okay, all right. Okay, we have eight, so we still need a few more people up here, all right? So you're going to do extra large, buddy? Okay, all right, go for it for a few minutes. Okay. So, in the third story in the book of Exodus, all right, Stu's coming up, Mike's coming up, all right, <laughs> Eric's up. Okay, good, good. All right, so our third story in the book of Exodus, let's go, we'll go in the order there. So, Jared, you stand beside Aaliyah. All right, we've got bricks, we've got sun, and we saw that when Moses was grown up and he went down, Charlie, you coming too? Perfect. Okay, he went down to rescue the people in Egypt And it didn't go like he planned. It got worse before it got better. So we learned that just because something is a part of God's plan for your life or for history does not mean that it's just going to be easy because God has it in his mind and in his heart. So then Pastor Keith talked about the plagues. Charlie, you want this one? You want a frog? It's a frog. Yeah? Okay, you got a frog shirt? Okay. Got a big frog shirt for you? All right, and we learned about all nine plagues. 
We will not ask you to remember what they are or in what order they came or any of the things because the big profound question that we asked about the plagues was the plagues really revealed the condition of Pharaoh's heart. And so we asked, what's the condition of your heart? Is your heart hard or is your heart soft? And would you be in a place to hear and respond to God if he's speaking to you uniquely today, just like he was speaking to Pharaoh in that day? So then we talked about one of the big moments in the plot line in uh, the book of Exodus. We got a large, all right? So I'm going to toss that over that direction. And we have the door with the blood on it. And we talked about the Passover, which was a really weird ritual that God implemented there. And actually, Jewish people still celebrate today to, to actually uh, forecast a little bit about what God was going to do later on in history through Jesus and how he would take the place and die in our place so that we could live. So we talked about the Passover. We talked about how rhythms and rituals help us remember what God has done in our lives and in history. Then two weeks ago, I'll give this to you, Mike, because you did this message. You talked about when the Israelites then were, were going out of Egypt and they got stuck. They got trapped at the corner of the Red Sea. They were between a rock and a wet place. And so we talked about the fact that sometimes we feel uh, they felt fear and they felt trapped in their lives. What do we do when we feel that way? And we talked about how we, when we feel trapped, God can deliver us from those places of fear and those places of feeling immobilized. And then last week, Pastor Keith looked at the story of the quail and manna. And so we've got a big quail there. And we talked about all of the times, and this story became a bit of an emblematic for us, of all the times that they wandered in the wilderness and they complained and they grumbled to God. And it was incredible that God in this instance with the quail and with the manna, he gave them exactly what they grumbled about. But he also didn't give them what they deserved, which was punishment. God's grace was at play. And so grace is getting what we do not deserve. And so today, we have our last t-shirt. Oh, it's a small. It's an adult small. We'll see if it works. Well, it might work. We'll see. So the last uh, final t-shirt in our series is the story in Exodus chapter 32 of the golden calf, which we'll talk about today. So let's say thank you to our t-shirt models for all of their work during the summer. Excellent. Well done. And you can actually take your t-shirts home with you today. That's your reward for many of you who have been very faithful models. So, Jared, yours will stay in your closet for a long time until you grow into that, if ever. All right? Okay. <laughs> so, let me ask you t-shirt models a question as you're going back to your seats there. Let's say instead of sending you home with a t-shirt, I sent you home with 200 bucks. What would you do with it? I'm not going to do it just so you know, like, and don't get all excited about it. What would you do with it if I sent you home with 200 bucks? Or maybe, maybe not 200 bucks. What if I sent you home today with $200,000? Ooh, he says. What if I sent you home with $2 million? Again, I am not going to do it. <laughs> but what would it be like? Sometimes we, we imagine in our minds what that would look like. And we ask ourselves questions like, what if I won the lottery? What if, what if I got two or 
hundred or twenty-two million dollars. What would you do with all of it? There's all the commercials, right, to help you figure out what you should do with it. You should have dinner with your friends on the top of a mountain and have the helicopter deliver the tables to you, hike them up, you know, the mountaintop. Uh, you should take your friends on exotic vacation after exotic vacation, all this type of stuff. I, none, of, none of that, I'm sure, ever happens after you win the lottery. But, in fact, a few years ago, Meg and I were watching a documentary that followed the lives of people after they won the lottery. And it was incredible. And the, the documentary was asking, well, how do people handle themselves after they get this incredible windfall in their lives? And it was astounding, and it was actually really quite sobering to watch because most of them uh, ruined their lives and their relationships very quickly after that came into their lives. A lot of them were broke within a few short years. Even here in BC, do you remember spring, the story of the guy who won, I think it was the children's home lottery, million dollars. He goes out, he buys a brand new Corvette. The dealer plates are still on. He smashes it into a fire hydrant in the neighborhood where kids are playing, going over 150 kilometers an hour with four other people in the car, flips it, and is criminally charged and loses almost everything. Just within a few days of winning it. Or two years ago in 2010, do you remember the story of the guy in Abbotsford who won the lottery? And he won $9.5 million dollars. Two years ago. In the first year following his win, the stress on his life resulted in him putting on 170 pounds. He topped out at 465 pounds after winning the lottery. The biggest one that sticks out in my mind in, in recent memory is the story of a man called Mark Carroll from the UK. In 2002, when Mark Carroll was just 19 years old, he won the equivalent of 15.4 million U.S. dollars in the British National Lottery. And he promptly went on a binge spending spree. And after a series of decisions, in 2006, he was put in jail for nine months. And then in 2010... Just a few short years after he won this, he declared bankruptcy. He had lost and spent all of it. And then in 2012, Mark Carroll, who is now known in the UK as the Lotto Lout nationally, makes just 42 pounds a week on a job seeker's allowance. From a multimillionaire to unemployed in 10 years flat. It's incredible stories. And sometimes, I think, when we hear these stories, the very first thought that goes through my mind is, well, I would never do that. Like that Mark Carroll guy, what a fool. Like how could you make such crazy decisions and get pulled in so many unwise directions so far, so fast, and just blow all of that in such a short period of time? We tell ourselves, if I was in their shoes, I would never do that. But then I read through the latter part of the book of Exodus, and I encountered the stories of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And they gripe and complain, and I tell myself the same thing. I would never do that. I would never behave like they do. But we're going to see today that just how similar maybe you and I are 
to the people we encounter in the book of Exodus. So let's pray as we look into God's word together in Exodus chapter 32. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it is truth, that it guides us in every area of our lives. And so we ask that you would teach us by your truth and by your word this morning. Reveal to us the things and places in our own life that we need to change. We ask for confirmation of the things and affirmation of the things that you have taught us and that we continue to live in in faithfulness. And so, God, we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week when we left the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 16, they were in trouble for complaining. And that cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. Again in chapter 17, that happens. And then in chapter 19, if you flip there for a minute, it's the precursor to our story. God actually reveals himself to them and wants to give them instructions as to how they should live. So two months out of Egypt, God comes to the people and in Exodus 19 verse 5 says to them, Now, if you will obey me, if you will keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all of the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And the people are super excited about this, and they say, okay, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. With great excitement and enthusiasm, they say it. So Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai in the wilderness, And God is going to give instructions for living to the people because they've just said, everything that God tells us, we will totally do it. We are all about following God. You just, Moses, tell us what he wants us to do, and we will totally do it. So Moses goes up onto the mountain to get these instructions, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And Aaron and Hur are supposed to be in charge while he's gone. But kids, you know how sometimes... When your parents aren't there and they leave someone else in charge, like let's just say a babysitter. I know I'm not speaking to any of you in particular, but let's just say there's a babysitter in charge in your house. Um, And sometimes maybe the rules that mom and dad have in place for you aren't always followed in the same way when a babysitter's around because like they're gone. So there's a little bit more flexibility, right, that's available. Well, you know, If mom and dad are gone for 40 days and 40 nights, it's a little bit even more extenuated. And the rules, I think, in our house would probably be out the window. So that's kind of what happens when we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. So some of the text will be up on the side screens for you to follow. And then some you'll want to read along either uh, on your smartphone in uversion.com or in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, We'd be very pleased to, we've got copies over at the Welcome Center. You can wander over there anytime and grab it and take it home with you. That would be our gift uh, to you. There's also space if you want to take notes on page 62 and 63 of your Momentum Journal, uh, if you brought that. If you didn't, we'll launch a new one next week for you. You can grab it. So Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, kind of ganged up on him. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Already kind of off base a little bit. Moses was the one that brought them. It was God who brought them out. But 
So Aaron comes up with a great idea. He says in verse 2, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the gold rings from their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took the gold and melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, well, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. I'm not sure why he thinks that. Verse 6, the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Let's pause there for a minute because the text is pretty thick with irony. So the story opens in Exodus 32.1 with a comment on how long Moses has been gone. But remember, he's up on the mountain talking to God, getting these instructions. Ironically, he's getting the instructions for proper worship, which will later manifest itself in the Old Testament in the worship house in the tabernacle. And he's only been gone like just a little over a month. So two months out of Egypt and then another month that Moses is gone. And it's not like they've lost him. They know where he is. He's just taking too long for their personal tastes. So they put some pressure on the babysitters, Aaron and her, and say, uh, listen, we have a plan. And Aaron exercises very weak leadership, caves quite quickly to their bad ideas. And Moses, again, ironically, is up on the mountain. God's writing in stone tablets with his own divine finger, you shall have no other gods before me, because that's just what they agreed to. You shall not make any idols, because that's what they said they didn't want. And what's going on down below? Idol making. But not just any idol. Aaron asks them for gold. And do you remember where they got this gold that he wants to use? Where did they get it from? Egypt. When specifically in Egypt? When they leave. The night that they left, God gave them favor with the Egyptians, and they were told, ask the Egyptians for all of this gold. And so they, they basically plundered the land of Egypt, and that gold was the sign to the Egyptians and the reminder for them, the very status symbol of their deliverance that God had done for them just a few short months earlier. And so as the saying goes, when the cat's away, the mice will play, and play these little mice did. So Moses leaves for a few days, and whammo, the whole project that they had just talked about getting underway, and is just in its infancy, of God using the people of Israel as a nation to himself to demonstrate his grace, his favor to the whole world, is almost kiboshed and in danger. In Exodus 32, pick up in verse 7. The Lord told Moses, quick, you need to go down the mountain. Your people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way that I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold. They've made a calf. They've bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it. And they are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 15, then Moses turned. He went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. 
They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. So when Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, presumably as they're walking down towards the camp, sounds like war in the camp. Moses replied, "Mm, (laughs) not the shout of victory. This is not the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of celebration. They're having a party. And when they came near the tent, the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. And he threw down the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they'd made, and he burned it, and he ground it up into powder, and he threw it into the water, and he forced the people to drink it. Maybe this is where parents get the idea of washing their children's mouth out with soap. I don't know. Verse 21. Finally, he turned to Aaron and he demanded, What did these people do to you to make you bring such a terrible sin on them? Don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You know, you yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, Make us who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us up here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, uh, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they brought it in to me. And I just simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it got here. It just happened. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. It's a sad low point in the book of Exodus. The people who had made such fervent promises are now so quickly forsaken God and run after other things. And God punishes the people for their sins. God gives them an opportunity to repent, says, who's on the Lord's side? And over in the tribe of Levi, thousands of people end up dying. They get sick from the water that they drank, that the gold is ground up and drunk. It's a bad situation. So if you had a word or phrase to describe kind of what happened here, what word or what phrase would you use to describe what, what do you think happened? There might not be a good phrase. What would you say? Unfaithfulness? Yeah, that'd be a good one. What else? There's no right answer. No wrong answer. Short attention span? (laughs) What else? Insecurity? Okay, in what way? Right, okay. The future is unknown. We just got to make a plan, get on with this business and see what's going down. And I think there's lots of good phrases. Um, if I had a phrase to describe it, I don't even think disobedience is strong enough. I think maybe more what Dustin was suggesting. Like this is complete disloyalty to what has been they've made. The promises they've made to God and they break it big time. And this comes out in Moses' actions when he comes down the mountain. What does he do? He smashes the stone tablets. And now this might seem to us when we read it, 
you kind of think, wow, he must have been really angry to just smash the stone tablets. It kind of seems a little bit in the text like an impetuous kind of spur-of-the-moment action that Moses kind of got so worked up he just couldn't figure out what to do, and he had this anger issue, and so he just smashed them. But when you read through the text carefully, it's not that Moses lost control. It's actually a very symbolic act. Moses is saying to the people, you broke your contract with God. And so I'm going to physically break this contract as a representative of that. Now, uh, I don't have any stone tablets for you to smash today, but uh, I do have something that we're going to do that kind of approximates that. So I need a couple of volunteers to come up here. I've got a pair of scissors. All right. And uh, we're going to break some contracts here today. All right? So, uh, come on up. Uh, maybe two volunteers, come on up. I need one for shredding and one for cutting. So, I have decided that I would no longer like to have a relationship with PC Financial MasterCard. So, I need... Uh, <laughs> Curtis is rushing to the front. Yeah. So, remember, that I no longer have this relationship. So, this invalid, whatever you're, you think. Okay, so, Ben, I need you to do some cutting, all right? So, uh, I've, uh, when they send me new cards, I was like, no, I don't want your new cards. So, we're done with them. So, cut those up. Just get little pieces is the key, right? Just keep cutting them because you don't want to, like, throw them out and then have the ability for somebody to put them back together, or at least that's what security people tell us. Yeah. Just as many little pieces. Keep going. Keep going over there. Uh, this is a former pin, which has no use to me whatsoever anymore, so go ahead and shred that. Yeah, it's good. We're good to go. Just start shredding. Yeah. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a piece of the cardholder agreement, so go ahead and shred that, because I don't need the cardholder agreement anymore. We're, we're done. I'm done with them. Yeah, former bills. Don't need to keep those. Yeah, we're... I'm, I'm finished with my relationship. Yeah, that's, it's all paid off. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. Yeah, keep working on that. Just uh, get rid of all of that altogether. Yeah. Perfect. No, that's good. I'm done with this contract with them. Like, we're, we're finished, PC and I. We're, we're no longer... I uh, should collect all this and mail it back to them and show them, you know, my love for their products and see how great, you know, their response is. But, okay, thanks, Ben. That's awesome. <laughs> so you get, you get the picture. You get the idea, right? It's not that Moses was kind of just had an anger fit and was like, I'm done with these people and such. You can read some very interesting dialogue that he and God end up having. But he needed to give them a, a visual reminder and say, I am, this contract that you guys were so hyped about, yeah, the love is gone. So let's kind of talk about what it looks like from here on out. And so just like kind of, I'm, I'm done with PC Financial Massacre. I'm taking a public and decisive stand at actions to sever my relationship with them. I'm breaking the contract with them. I'm being disloyal to the way they want me to act. This is essentially what the people have done by rushing out and seeking after another god. One commentator notes that the fundamental problem is not one of disobedience to a law code. The fundamental problem is the break in relationship that's happened here between them and God. God had bound himself to these people, and they had bound themselves to God with fidelity to be obedient to what he said, and then it all went out the window. 
So Moses responds by saying, oh, you've broken your contract all right. It's so broken that it's smashed into lots of little pieces. And this is, again, where it seems pretty convenient for us to say, well, I would never do that. If I was there, I would have totally made different choices. I would have stood up and said, no, this is wrong. We should definitely not do that. And maybe you would have. If so, you must be stronger than I am because I think I might have pushed, tried to push the babysitter into letting me do my own thing. Because the real question isn't so much for you and I, would we bow down to a golden baby cow? Because that's not really something that's legitimately an option for us in our day and our time. The real question to ask that this text is driving at is the question, is there anything in your life that you would say is more important than God? So, is there anything in your life that you would say is more important than God? So, to answer that, we're going to take a little trip, a little visit to the PE-inspired uh, fictional land of Bible land with the Sunday school lady from Jelly Telly's animated series, What's in the Bible, to see if we're really all that different from the children of Israel. Watch this with me. Oh, way back in the Bible, the ancient world was tribal, and they bowed before the moon and sun, or metal cows, or anyone they thought could give them food and health and victory at war and wealth, or make their crops grow very high and give them lots of babies. That's ridiculous. A metal cow can't give you food or help you win battles or have babies. Of course not. We know that now. Right. We're much smarter. Um, right. Of course, today we know the sun is just a flaming ball of gas. And praying to the moon won't help our crops or grow our grass. But don't think them so very odd For praising things instead of God Cause sometimes we're no different at all ah! We worship money cause we think that it will save us But when we chase it it's more likely to enslave us in Egypt, life was pretty hard. We stayed beneath our credit cards to pay for all the silly stuff they gave us. And we ignore the God who loves us from above to worship at the altar of romantic love. We look to cars and sports and all the rest to help us find our happiness. When God has said right from the start that trusting Him will heal your heart, we work and worry about our worth and look for heaven here on earth and miss the promise that we will be blessed. No wonder we're all absolutely stressed. Oh, yes. We're much smarter than the Israelites. Uh. Oh, yes. We're much smarter than the Israelites, aren't we? Well, you might be, but I don't know if I am. We may not give out our uh, earrings and our gold and have it melted down into an idolatrous golden calf that we bow down to, but fundamentally, that's not what the story or the story of the book of Exodus is about. It's about what and who we offer our hearts to and our lives. It's about how serious we are on following God on versus doing life on our own terms. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because I think the description of what happened 
in Exodus is summed up very well for us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness so long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground, yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6, these things happen as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, this is a direct quote from Exodus 32, the people celebrated with feasting, drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. We must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and died from snake bites. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death. Verse 11, these things happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So if you think that you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. When you think about it, the temptations in your life and in mine are not fundamentally different from those that the people of Israel experienced in the book of Exodus. You and I get pulled in a bunch of unhealthy directions each and every day. You and I get presented with the opportunity to make choices that go directly in the face of the way in which God has invited us to live. We're tempted, just like they were, to play it safe when God asks us to take big risks. We're tempted to believe the lie that says, well, life with God will always be up and to the right. It'll be fine. And when it isn't, we get disappointed and disillusioned. We're tempted to take credit for other people's hard work. We're tempted not to tell the full truth so we can get out of an uncomfortable situation and save face. When God says, trust me, I'll provide for you, we're tempted to rush out and make it happen all by ourselves. We're tempted to trust in our education, in our net worth, in our planning smarts for the future. We're tempted when we've been hurt by others, sometimes very deeply, to gossip about them and make sure that people take our side. We're tempted to keep all of the money that God has entrusted to us for ourselves instead of generously releasing it to the work of God and his mission in the world. The temptations in your life and mine are not fundamentally different from what has been faced by people all through history and faced in the Bible. We're tempted to be less serious about following God and living our lives as individuals and as a community of faith on the terms that we want. And at the risk of being simplistic, the terms that God wants are pretty simple. And the question that he asks is pretty simple. Is there anything in your life that you would say is more important than God? And the Bible uses a picture to help us understand this. And that picture is the, the picture of our hearts. And the question that's asked is, what occupies your heart? I don't know about you, but in my heart, there's all kinds of things that occupy my heart. Worry, distraction, sometimes confidence, sometimes fun, thoughts about money, fear, trust, 
doubt. There's even room in there sometimes for God. But you can see this picture that the challenge of my heart when it looks like that and when all those things occupy real estate in my heart is that my heart is pulled in all of those directions and my loyalty ends up getting divvied up between too many things. And I'm pulled in too many competing directions so that no one thing wins the day. And the Bible calls that what it is. The Bible calls that idolatry because we can't serve more than one master. I have to make a choice who's occupying the prime real estate in my life, in my heart, in my decision-making, in my hope for the future. The people of Israel had to choose. Pharaoh had to choose. You and I each have to choose who's going to occupy the primary real estate in your heart, in your life. And maybe a better way of getting at that question is to ask, what are the competing frameworks or what's competing for space in your life that might be pushing God to the margins? And we're going to talk about that beginning in our series next week called Stiff Competition. I'm going to invite Dustin and the team to come, and they're going to lead us in a new song that expresses this longing for a heart that doesn't feel pulled in so many different directions. And the language comes to us from Psalms, Psalm chapter 86, verse 11, which says, God, would you give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name? Give me a purity of heart, God. Give me a singleness of heart that I might honor you. And I want you to ask yourself as the team plays this song through, what is competing for space in your heart? How much real estate are you giving those things? And if you've never considered or given God the principal real estate and the deed to your heart and to your life, I want you to consider that today. Our prayer team will be available at the sides and at the back. And I want you to come and find us and talk to us about that. And after you've asked the question, what's competing for space in my heart? When you're ready, you can begin to sing the words to this new song. But I want to tell you, if you don't mean it, don't sing it. This is between you and God, but you might also want to take that helpful step of talking with somebody about where you're at in your life and processing some of those things that might be competing for space. And so that's what our prayer team is for. They'll be available for you during this time of response. And we don't, we don't have the prayer team there just so, we don't sing at the end just so you can think to yourself, uh, oh, that was interesting. Uh, I'm sure that's for somebody else to do something about. Or even just give mental assent to us. We build this time particularly of response into our gathering this morning because we believe that God might be speaking to you about something in your life. And if you want to process that, community is a great place to begin, inviting others into the journey with you. So as we sing, take some time to ask God by His Holy Spirit to speak to you and answer that question, what's competing for space in my heart? What's taken over real estate? Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it could be anything. What is it? And when you process that, maybe you want to come and talk to somebody about it. Maybe you want to celebrate with somebody what God is doing. Maybe you've got concerns that you want us to pray about in your health or in your life, in your family. And once you finish and you want to begin to sing this song, then talk to God about it and surrender those parts of your life that are in competition with what it is, uh, an undivided heart.
Let's pray together as we respond in song. God, we thank you for the gracious work of your Holy Spirit who points out to us the things in our life that you want to teach us. And so, God, we receive that gift here this morning. For any of us whose hearts are hard and stubborn, we pray you'd continue your work. For those of us whom you've talked to before about these issues, and we've, we've just brushed it off and haven't given it the thought or consideration that it needs, remind us again this morning, God, of those things that compete for our attention and our affection. And God, we make a commitment to surrendering those things to you and walking in freedom and in power by the grace that your Holy Spirit gives to us, Father. And so this song, as we sing it, God, we pray that you would work deep in our lives and deep in us as a community to make the words of this song true and to make the words of Psalm 86 true, that you would gift us with an undivided heart that we might fear your name.